Okay. Is how did your paths first cross with Bob Dole? Hmm. Let's see. In 1971, I was working. I was in my 16th month, 16th month of working for a Senate Select Committee on Equal Educational Opportunity, which was created to last nine months. <laughs> and it was getting tiresome. They weren't even close to doing a report. I don't think a report actually ever got written. Uh, but I started looking around for other things with the help of uh, uh, a number of folks in town, not least including family and friends of family, uh, ended up getting an opportunity to go from the Senate staff to the Republican National Committee, uh, understudying the Lynn Nofziger, and the plan was to write speeches for the chairman, Bob Dole. Okay. Um, so this would have been, I was during the Nixon... It was in the run-up to Nixon re-election. It was, okay. I believe I, I got to the RNC in uh, October or November of uh, 71. And what was the relationship between the RNC and the President's re-election committee at that point? <laughs> uh, it was all captured in a story Dole used to tell on the stump. He'd say... Uh, I'd call the White House, I'd tell them I want to see the President. They'd call back later and say, you want to see the President? He'd say, yes. And they'd say, tune in to Channel 9 at 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, it was a subservient relationship. Uh, it was an interesting time, because in addition to writing his speeches, I functioned as a press secretary. And not only was the RNC, as it, I suppose, ought to be, when the president is of the same party and therefore the head of the party. Uh, not only was the RNC subservient to the president, but half of the Republican establishment, if not all of it in town, was. My recollection, you know, it was a long time ago, but I recall that we had uh, press release paper for any one of a number of Republican senators. The White House would call of a given afternoon and once we'd put out the release, we'd call the senator's office and tell him what he'd said. And I'm not talking just about Senator Dole there. So it was, the RNC was clearly subservient to the White House, but it was a time when uh, the White House had an awful lot of uh, clout and wasn't shy about exercising. It's interesting because I don't talk with President Ford, who I became very close to. Uh, in his later years, um, he found it beyond frustrating. I think he said Haldeman and Ehrlichman came up to the hill once, and Ehrlichman did not help their cause by falling asleep in the course <laughs> of the uh, of the meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and there was a sense of condescension. I mean, is that yeah. too too no, strong No, I, I, I think that's exactly right. Now, I wasn't that closely involved in the business, I wasn't involved at all in the business of congressional relations. We were involved in the business of, the, the business that actually brought Dole the chairmanship in the first place. He began much more one-dimensionally positively and vocally defending the president on the floor of the Senate 
than did the then Senate leader, uh, Hugh Scott from Pennsylvania. That got the attention of the White House. I believe it's, it's the single reason why this junior and freshman senator from Kansas became the uh, Republican national chairman. Uh, so I wasn't involved in the business of congressional relations so much as I was involved in the, in the business of uh, advocacy of the president and the White House uh, in the run-up to a re-election campaign. Why? I understand on first thought, I think I understand on first thought, why Dole, as a freshman member of the Senate, would want that job. On second thought, why would he want that job? Well, I mean, by the time I, I had any association with him, he'd already gotten it. So I can only speculate, and I think um, uh, rightly he saw it as a stepping stone to bigger things. Uh, it was a first step in a succession of steps that he took that got him more and more in the leadership of the Senate and ultimately of the par- and, and of the party uh, simultaneously. I, I think he was right about that. Did you have a sense at that point that he had a plan? That this was part of a plan? No, no. I, I remember uh, after I think I'd left him, I, uh, you know, I worked with him at the RNC and then subsequently for a while in his Senate office, and I think it was after I'd left that association altogether that I... Uh, raised with him the suggestion that I think he ought to go for a senatorial committee chair. Well, he never did that, uh, but he maybe by then he had a crystallized plan that would get him to Senate leadership itself. I don't know. Uh, if he had a plan, he never shared it with me. It, was, it wasn't clear to me that he was a planner in that way anyway. Huh. I think that... Uh, uh, quite the contrary, he was uh, he, he was in the moment more than that's not fair. It's not precise, but, but much I, more that than that he had a distant yeah. horizon with his eye on it. Yeah, he's an improviser. Yeah, yeah. There's the famous story uh, campaign I wasn't involved in, where <laughs> I don't think you wrote the book. Somebody wrote the book in which they're flying to a a campaign stop in 96, I think. And he looks down, see, it's night, he sees the lights, he says, let's try there. It was no, no advance, it was, you know, completely spontaneous. That's the way he ran things. So I think it's the way he ran his life. Which, in some ways, could give you pause, couldn't it? Sure. I mean... Uh, you know, except for the fact that in many respects it worked for him. Hmm. How so? Uh, the career is remarkable. I mean, the career is truly remarkable, particularly given the odds against in the 40s. I mean, this is a man with a very keen mind. It's not a disciplined mind, particularly, although he's a disciplined fellow. Hmm. Uh, and it's not a an intellectual's mind but it's a very quick, facile mind. Hmm. 
uh, and determination, strength of character. I mean, the guy's got a lot going for him. Uh, so, how did the RNC function at that point? I mean, it seems to me back then, um, and I've heard him talk about it. You know, there was at least a real desire on the part of a number of people, including himself, to try to diversify the party, to try to uh, broaden its base and yep. expand the tent, and um, and all that. I mean, how was that displayed? In the, in the sort of day-to-day activities of the committee? Or his travels, mm-hmm. or... Uh, maybe you should explain what the... What do, I think a lot of people would be interested to know. What does a national party committee, you know, do at the well, latter uh, part uh, of the 20th century? Yeah, it, well, it wasn't, you know, it was... Understand about me that I was there in 72 the re-election campaign I returned in 77 under Bill Brock when 18% of Republican 18% of Americans said they were Republicans after Watergate and all the rest of it yeah. uh, so I've seen it in different at different junctures in 72 it operated I think almost one-dimensionally as an adjunct to the White House, <coughs> excuse me, and the uh, presidential re-election campaign. By 77, when I got back there, it was a very different beast, not so much because the RNC itself had changed, structurally in any way, but because we were out of power. And it was possible for Bill Brock to be what Bob Dole could not be, the, truly the head of the Republican Party. Bob Dole could be a, uh, an advocate for the head of the Republican Party, who was the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, so it was a money raiser and a megaphone for the presidential Messages, and I assume in some ways those messages could theoretically come into conflict with the messages of individual Republican candidates, or even the House and the Senate committees. Absolutely, Uh, the discipline enforced by the White House was enforced precisely because that tendency was inheres in in a. In a, in a American political party, and they were determined to bottle it up as much as possible. A lot of people, after the fact, expressed frustration that Nixon seemed to be almost oblivious to, certainly uh, unsupportive of efforts to dramatically increase Republican representation on the Hill. That it was a in some ways it was a selfish campaign. It was it was a lot of the critics at least thought it was all about running up his numbers without necessarily sharing some of the, the wealth uh, with, with candidates down the down the ticket. Richard, I tell people that I grew up conservative and woke up one day in my twenties with mild surprise to find I was a Republican. <laughs> and Excuse me, doesn't mean I'm any 
less conservative. I meant to offer you water and get oh. some of my own. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> forgive me. No, no, that's fine. You, uh, <coughs> we can. Well, maybe we should take Yeah, sure. Uh, and so I, part of becoming a Republican was being at the Victory Night Hotel, probably it was the Shoreham, election night 1972, and being personally ecstatic about the sweep of, of Nixon's win. And then encountering Dole, who was not morose, but he was far from ecstatic, precisely because it was the lonely victory you were just asking about. And he had hoped and worked to the extent he could to try to make it a Republican Party victory. It was a Richard Nixon presidential victory uh, uh, instead. That's fascinating. Had that, I assume, that didn't just blossom that evening. I mean, had there been this tension uh, during the campaign? Was Not something that he perceived? shared with me, uh, but there must have been. Uh, I think clearly he was a party guy. There's no two ways about that. Even for all that he had been, uh, uh, you know, staunch in his support for the president, he'd been staunch in his support not just for Richard Nixon as an individual, but for mm. Richard Nixon as a Republican president. I, I apologize in advance. I know it's purely speculative, but it's always fascinated me. I mean, when you're around O at all, uh, and you know about the history of the RNC and what happened afterwards yeah. and everything else, and and yet I, I don't think it's too mu too strong to say that Richard Nixon was almost his political father figure. Um, I mean, I would go into his office in the later years, in Nixon's last years, and you know, he said, "I heard from your pen pal." He'd open the drawer, and in would be all these handwritten letters from Nixon. I mean, there was something. It went beyond Dole's reverence for the presidency, which was also a real part of the package. But there was, and, and I'm, I'd be fascinated to know, however speculative, your interpretation of that relationship. What was it? Do you think that sustained it and in some way strengthened it, notwithstanding the public humiliation that Dole experienced in the wake of 72? I don't know that I've got a lot. I mean, again, it's, it's something that I could speculate about rather than know anything firsthand about. I will tell you that I have the distinct, clear recollection of... Uh, August 9th, 1974. I was then in Dole's Senate office, and uh, he watched the proceedings, the helicopter off the lawn, all the televised farewell, uh, quietly and alone with the door closed to his private office. Uh, the rest of us were out in the outer offices watching it ourselves. He watched it alone. I think it was very affecting to him. But not just, and maybe not even then, primarily because of what you were talking about with respect to his 
respect for and admiration of Nixon. I think in part he was watching his whole political life flash in front of his eyes. That was supposed to be the reason he was going down in the ensuing election. There wasn't any two ways about it uh, in terms of the common wisdom and I think in terms of his own psychology at the time. He expected to lose is my firm belief. The 74 race? Yes. Really? Yeah. I want to come back to that. Just go back to the RNC. Um, What was he like to write speeches for? (laughs) It was... uh, First of all, I was young and had never done it before, so I didn't know that it was impossible. <laughs> Vic Gold wrote a book once. Uh, I think the book was PR as in president. Starts a chapter saying, no, no man alive has ever written more than three speeches for Bob Dole. I've told him subsequently, <laughs> I'd written a couple hundred. I don't think he ever delivered a one, but I've written a couple of hundred, again, because I didn't know. You couldn't do that. And, and why was it impossible? Just because you can't. I mean, there was one period when my third child was due, and I told my wife to please wait because I had 16 speeches to write in 14 days. <laughs> That's impossible. You can't do that, but I didn't know you couldn't do it. Um, the other, th- the thing that was, the good thing about it was that it was a relationship over the phone, which is a very different relationship than I subsequently had in his Senate office, and it was an easier relationship that way. Uh, so, what was it like to write speeches for him? First, it was something that for me at the age of twenty-five was really a kick. I mean, I was very proud of myself and full of myself for doing it. And uh, notwithstanding that he didn't deliver many of them, uh, it was something I was very proud of. Uh, And it was something that was very different from working in his, in his, directly for him in his, in his office. Um, is it a flaw? His, I mean, one of the stock criticisms, particularly at the at the national level, the presidential level, certainly, was his communications skills. Probably exacerbated by Senate speak. I mean, this kind of inside the Beltway committee yeah. jargon that he could fall into. Um, did, did he think he had a problem when it came to uh, to communicating, or um... no? Actually, see, when, when he didn't, when I refer to him not delivering the speeches I wrote, what he gave instead was a pretty stock speech he had developed. For all I know, on, completely on his own. Hmm. I heard it a couple of times before party crowds, and it was rather effective. It was good. It wasn't. He wasn't in, unable or inarticulate in that way at all, and at that time he was very good. Uh, but it was a speech he had 
become accustomed to, to delivering and had it down uh, clearly and down pat. The utility of what I'd write for him is sometimes the news uh, hook, if there was one in what I'd written, he would read. And that would be uh, what would come out of my work. The rest of it, it would be woven into his stock uh, speech. And it was very good. It was quite effective. He was thought to be, at the time, quite an effective communicator. He wasn't during his presidential campaign. And I don't know that he knew he had a problem, but he had a problem. I remember. And they told him to repeat, and he'd get out and he'd say, repeat, repeat, repeat. <laughs> I mean, he didn't even get what they were trying to tell him. Was it he didn't get it, or he was almost mocking? I mean, th there's always been this sardonic quality yeah. about Dole. Oh, really? And, well, no, but I mean, you always had this, I always had this sense, as someone who's written a few speeches for him, that in a sense it's a fatal flaw. His sense of the ridiculous often trumped the kind of discipline of, of doing ridiculous things that you have to do. Yeah. To succeed. Yeah. Well, that, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But I don't know. I never thought that explained some of the things he did on the stump. Hmm. I mean, sure, the, the, the diversion of the plane to the, the lights down there uh, may be a way of saying, isn't this an absurd exercise? But he was serious about wanting to be president of the United States, and for a while, I think he thought he had a chance. And that, of course, is the great question. Uh, he is, as you said, in many ways, an extraordinarily disciplined person. From, I mean, he wouldn't be where he is, yeah. obviously. He wouldn't be alive, probably, if he was. And yet, when it came to doing what you have to do to get to his life, not lifelong, then certainly you know, much of his life, yeah. ultimate goal, there's some discrepancy there. For all that he's disciplined and uh, intellectually very, very, I, I don't want to call him brilliant because that connotes something different, but I don't mean that he's not. No, I, I, I think you know, I know what you the, mean. The we, mind is, is, is it, It's lightning fast, yeah. and he's often yeah. four or five steps ahead of right. you. But, it's, it's, but even with that ability to think ahead, he's not strategic. And so he didn't know, I think. It, it didn't come naturally to him to have a strategy for winning the presidency. He had, I mean, we, we've talked about it already. He, the way he lived his life was almost serendipity. Uh, and it started with the absurd. I've always thought that when the Army put this kid from the plains of Kansas on skis in the Alps, they said, and, and he almost died because of it, he said to himself, there's an awful lot about life. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so strategy didn't make sense. I mean, to, to, to set a long-term goal and tactics to achieve it when they might put you back on skis in the Alps, <laughs> doesn't well, make sense. Yeah, well put. 
before I forget, I have to ask you, I mean, do you remember where you were uh, when you learned about the Watergate break-in? Uh, or what are your recollections generally? That was his eternal lie. Um, was he concerned? Oh, he came to be concerned. He used to say as a joke, but I think he hath believed it, that I've asked them, I've told them they've got to do this. He'd say this even in speeches. You know, they've got to make a clean breast of it. They've got to do this, that, or the other, whatever it was. And they tell me they've got it all covered, not to worry about it. And he would say it sardonically, but you know, I think he believed that Colson or those people had thought it through and knew how they were going to figure it out. Because he thought... Was it that he wanted to believe that, or do you think that he really believed I it? I think that he did think that they had some of them... Um, special talents. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, well yeah. I mean, he has talked about, for example, that there were things that the White House would send down during the 72 campaign that he would not read, that he would not parrot. There were personal attacks mm-hmm. on McGovern, and I think once he, he told me once about uh, Mrs. Graham. Uh, oh, you yeah. know that I remember him saying on on one occasion, not going to say that, not going to do that, don't even give it to me, and it was something that had come from the White House. I honestly don't remember what it was, mm. but the recollection of that there was one occasion suggests to me that there was there were several. And was a lot of that coming out of Colson's shop? Yeah, or? but not all of it. There, yeah. you know, Ken Clawson, Colson, uh, the whole uh, nine yards of the White House staff. Uh, Pat Buchanan would occasionally write stuff for for Dole, uh, you know, so it came from different sources. But I always thought of Colson as the prime mover in, in a lot of this. Tell me about the uh, relationship of Dole and Wynn Knobzinger. When they were in the same room together, you couldn't breathe. You were laughing, so... <laughs> because And it was a contest between them. Uh, who and they had different styles, so you you never were sure who actually won because they were both funny as a crutch. Yeah. I believe that it was just one dimensionally a good positive relationship, but it was notwithstanding the relationship, an environment that uh, Lynn just couldn't stand. He hired me to the RNC. And I think, again, it was late October, early November, and by the end of December, he was gone. He'd gone to California. Really? Yeah. And, and what? Because I mean, I've always thought of Lynn as a bit of a free spirit. Yeah, he was that. And, you know, he chafed under uh, their orders, the White House orders, and mm. I'm sure he disagreed, uh, but I, I wasn't with him long enough to have ever had a conversation about it. With their approach, I also wonder too because later, you know, jumping ahead to, to seventy six, when you know it, it's out there in the in the in the water supply somehow that um, Dole would be an acceptable vice presidential running mate to the Reagan people. Yeah. 
was that something that Lynn was pushing? Was it something that Dole was encouraging him to push? Uh, where that, could it have come from? By then, I was gone from his office. I mean, we're, again, we're talking 76. Yeah. I remember personally having conversations with two or three people about Dole as a Ford vice presidential candidate, uh, one of whom was uh, Bryce Harlow, uh, and another was an AEI type who probably would have been close to, to Ford. But Ford as a Reagan possibility... I, 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 oh, no, I, I'm sorry. I, I mis- uh, in the sense that I, I once Ford, once no, Ford won the nomination... I, I misspoke. Dole no. as, a, as a Reagan possibility, I, I don't... I don't know anything about. No, I, I, I and I, I should have been, I should have been clear that once Ford had won the nomination, and was, you know, was had to pick a running mate, right, and was going over all these names, and sort of Dole came into the picture fairly, fairly late in the discussion, and supposedly wrapped in this assurance that he would be acceptable. To, oh, to Governor oh, oh, Reagan I'm and the sorry, Reagan and the Reagan yeah. people, okay. and I'm wondering whether the win would have been the yeah. source of that, or I, I, well, might have been. I just don't know. Yeah. But before, what made Bryce Harlow such a legendary figure? A lot of things. Um, and Dole had enormous respect for yeah. him, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I think the world of Bryce. I'm one of the couple of thousand people in this town who says he, you know, counts himself a sort of protege of Bryce Harlow's. So I, I don't mean to denigrate it when I say yep. one of the things was longevity. Yeah. He was around for a very long time. And as I tell people, because I used to give what I call my Bryce Harlow speech, uh, when he wasn't, he, you know, he was the uh, wash rep for Procter & Gamble, except when he was advising when he was on the staff of Republican presidents from Eisenhower to Ford. Uh, and he was, he had integrity. That's why there is a Bryce Harlow Foundation. I mean, you don't create those things for people who are schmucks. Uh, and he was articulate. And that made a big difference, I think. He was, for a lot of people, the articulate voice of the business community. Uh, so a lot of reasons. So now the the, uh, the transition from the RNC to the Senate staff was that yeah. immediate? Was there an no. interim between? Or? He got bushwhacked. Remember, in uh, I guess it was January. Uh, and, after and were the you election. around then yes. when that he happened? He called me. Uh, I was still at the RNC, and he called me and told me he'd been bushwhacked. <laughs> uh, uh, the day, the, the the afternoon when he got back from Camp David, as I recall it, and was he angry? <laughs> and or surprised? He was dull. <laughs> I did, you know, I I might X this for the transfer, but probably not. I remember he called, said he'd been bushwhacked, and uh, that suggests. 
then he wasn't just blaming Richard yeah. Nixon. That's that's right. But uh, had a nice. He went on and 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 told me rehearsed basically. I think why you know Bush was a good fellow and all of that. He said a lot of positive things about Bush and and explained the president had had a lot of positive things to say about Bush. And I listened politely. What else are you going to do? And uh, not knowing what to say. And before he hung up, he said, Mike, I have a question. I said, yes, Senator. He said, what's a dilettante? <laughs> this in the context of his reporting his conversation with the president. Oh, I never forgot that. That's a great, yeah. that's a great story yeah. on many levels. It, it may come out of the transcript. Well, no, it's just, a, yeah, no, but it's a great, <laughs> the, the, um, and I, I always wondered, I mean, it's remarkable, I know it's much later on, but it's remarkable the loyalty that developed during the Bush presidency, the absolute total loyalty. That, and, and I and I suspect maybe you surprised some of the Bush people having yeah, gone through the, 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 the first. Yeah, yeah the I mean, HW, yeah, yeah, later on, given that long history, and which I and I, and a rivalry that I sense is cultural as much as anything else. I mean, and, and I wonder if that's something he identified with Nixon: this hard scrabble, you know, background. Things didn't come easy. Um, a real, I mean, I've always thought there was a streak of the populist yep. in Dole. Yep. A real identification with a little guy and a corresponding, mostly well-concealed resentment of people who, who had an easy, had uh, easy uh, time uh, of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but in terms of the relationship the one thing he had that was common to the relationship with Nixon and the first Bush is a war that they went through together. You know, the, the last real debate I ever, I, I, I've seen in this Senate, I didn't even this Senate anymore, was in the run-up to the first Gulf War where you had people like Dole and Inouye who knew exactly what was at stake and knew exactly what they were talking about, weighing the consequential decision about going to war or not. And I think that, that bonded those guys. I mean, greatest generation or not, and it, wasn't, it was no slouch of a generation. It's one of the things that bonded them together. Well, and it's like... I mean, people find it hard to understand the the real special bond he had with Phil Hart, or and even George McGovern. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, Dan anyway. Yes. You know, I yeah. mean, they, they recuperated together. It's a remarkable thing. It is. Uh, so, um, now, how did you come to be on the? On the personal staff? Well, he called, as I said, he called the day he was bushwhacked. And I don't think it was in that conversation, but it was soon thereafter that I don't remember whether he broached it directly or had somebody broach it with me or whatever. It took, 
in any event, the, the, the possibility was raised. It took a couple of months, at least, uh, to work it out, that uh, sufficient that I did go over to his Senate office. Was executive assistant there. Now, is that that's different from administrative? That's correct. The, and, and how did it differ? Um, well, it, it, the the my expectation was that it would evolve to administrative assistant. Though Bill Katz, who had been there for a long time, would be there for a long time. Uh, the and it just it never worked out as well for me with him, the senator, when I was there, as it had working for him over the phone. You're uh, not the first person to have that experience. Yeah, well, why, why do you think that... One that, of my successors lasted three days. <laughs> I mean, David Chu didn't stay. Uh, why, why do you think that is? You know, I, I don't know that I've... Well, I used to use the, 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 the uh, Groucho Marx joke that Anybody who'd be willing to work for him can't be any good, you know. Uh, there, you know, I, I don't know um, why it was like that. Is it is it in part a disinclination to delegate, or or a trust issue? Or, you know, that, that, that side of dole that's impossible to handle? No, I mean, the but, handlers? No, but both words evoke not a reason, but a factor. He delegated a lot to Joanne Coe. And, and he trusted Joanne Coe. How did, and that, and you know, you're absolutely right. And it was a unique relationship. And... And why? What was it about that? I, you, you, you I, don't I never. I don't know. Yeah, never knew. Um, but I think that somehow I failed to please Joanne, and that didn't stand me well with the senator. Well, you would be in extensive company, if, <laughs> yeah, you know, know, if that's the if that's yeah. the case. Have you talked to Bill Wolford? Um, Do you know Bill? No, no, we have not. I certainly know the name. Bill took the job only on condition that she go elsewhere, and she went, I guess, to the Senate clerk's office. Really? Boy, Dole must have really wanted him. He was a good, good, a good, you know, homespun, homegrown Kansan. Yeah. Uh, wonderful, solid guy. Yeah, tell me about the people around Dole and, and what they... Reveal about Dole. A lot of the people that I knew from Kansas, and you know, it's a long time ago. Mm. Bear with me, but they were uh, uh, salt of the earth. I hate the word average, but they were average citizens rather than. Uh, elitists or captains of industry or any of that sure. stuff. Yeah. They were a lot of the people that he knew if not growing up I don't think it was that but 
uh, early in his adult life, and they remained friends. Uh, and he seemed, frankly, comfortable with them in a way that he wasn't always comfortable with others. Yeah. Uh, in his staff, one of the guys he seemed to rely on most, who was a reliable guy, was Bill Taggart. Uh, Bill got a lot of things done for Bob Dole. Bill understood what was, in many ways, most important to Bob Dole as a Kansas senator, which was agriculture, and he understood it very well. And Bill was, uh, you know, I, he, he's still one of the greats, but uh, homespun, yeah. Uh, nothing super sophisticated about Bill Taggart. Just a good fellow, very good fellow, loyal, uh, hardworking, reliable, somebody Dole trusted. I was just saying, I think you, you may have just answered my question, but the kinds of qualities you think Dole really was looking for, uh, apart from expertise, yep. but in terms of personal qualities, uh, if he's going to give you his trust or his reliance, and he'd make that judgment sometimes in a snap. Uh, I'm told that he hired <laughs> Betty, his receptionist. Myers. Betty Myers. Uh, Who became, at least in staff, legend, sort of the Siamese twin to Joanne. Yeah, that's right. But the junior partner, decidedly. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 don't, I, I was told he hired her off the airplane. <laughs> you know, she was a flight attendant, stewardess, they called him then. He came back one day and had hired Claude uh, Alexander, who tragically died very recently. The reason he hired Claude, uh, I, I don't know how he met him or how much time he spent with him, but he was impressed with the guy's qualities and the fact that as a one-legged Vietnam veteran, uh, he was like himself, nobody ever said this, determined not to let it stop him. Typ typically, and the last time I saw Dole was at Claude's funeral, Claude, at my age, about 61, died because his chute didn't open. Didn't fully open. He's, you know, he was, he was a skier. He was a, a, a para-skier in the Paralympics, he uh, that wasn't enough, so he started jumping out of planes. Yeah. Dole, I'm sure, saw in that determination not to let the injury get him down a lot of himself. So that's the kind of stuff he looked for. It was something sort of delicate. Um, it may or may not survive, but this period also was. Uh, we now know a difficult period for him personally. I mean, clearly on the on the yeah. home front, with the marriage breaking up, right, and uh, um, and then obviously subsequently meeting Elizabeth and and all. Did 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 you sense that? I mean, um, I don't mean the details, but I mean, yeah. did he um, did he bring any of that into the workplace? It must have been um, a certain amount of unhappiness yeah. or uh, when disarray I, when in his I life. I got to his, I was I was pretty much oblivious to it while still at the RNC. 
When I got to his Senate office, I think the separation, if not the divorce, had been effective. It was 74. I was aware that he was dating some. And <laughs> then got to be a frequent phone chatter with Elizabeth <laughs> in the run-up to the re-election in 74, because she would call me periodically very worried about his prospects, looking for reassurance. Really? Parenthetically, you know, that campaign was against Bill Roy, who billed himself as one in a million. You know that? No. I mean, Roy, Roy was, he said, there were only 200 people in the country who had both a law and a medical degree, he being one of them, in a population of 200 million, that made him one in a million. I am one in a million as well, because there aren't that many people in this country who have worked for both Bob and Elizabeth. But uh, I, I first met Elizabeth over the phone when they were dating and she was concerned, but I ended my labor department experience uh, during the first year of Elizabeth's tenure as uh, Secretary of Labor. Was there a perception, apart from Elizabeth, but was there a perception at all in that run-up to 74 when he was as concerned as he was that, that the divorce was an issue? Was that at all contributing to uh, their concern about his re-election prospects? I don't remember it as such. There were clearly other real hot-button issues that were factors. Maybe in Kansas the divorce was an issue, but I just don't remember. Right. Yeah. It's interesting you said you, you thought that he thought, at least at one point, that he was going to lose. Yeah. How, did he say it? I mean, how did you, how did you sense it? No, but he was... Uh, Spending an awful lot of time making sure that he didn't miss votes so that he could tell the people of Kansas that he was representing them well, even in the heat of the campaign. That struck some of us as a death wish. I mean, he's the best personal campaigner any of us had ever met, and he wasn't using it. Tell future generations, you know, who've never experienced it or seen it, why, why, what made him such a good campaigner? Again, that mind. Forget about Kansas. If he'd run into constituents on the steps of the Capitol, he would say without a hesitation, hello, Bill, hello, Jeanette, how are the kids, and, and you know, what's, what's life like in Effingham or wherever they were from. Just a photographic memory. And so... If he'd met people once, he knew them for life. Uh, that was a that's an extraordinary gift. I don't know where it comes from. It's amazing. And by the way, was, did it mean? Did he also remember slights? Did he remember? Did he also remember slights? I mean, <laughs> I mean, a memory can be can be a, a double-edged sword. Well, uh, I, I but, used to joke that the people would say, you know, oh, it must be great working for him. He's so funny. I'd say, yeah, but, you know, he uses the humor as a weapon if you work for him. <laughs> and he does. Uh, uh, so uh, he just was uh, fantastic. 
uh, I think that, though, that as we got further into 74, and particularly that summer, um, he just didn't see a way that he could win. Hmm. Um, Was Roy seen as a particularly formidable... Or is it just the national only, climate? Only in, in, given that climate. He was seen as a very serious, liberal, uh, uh, but thoughtful uh, House member, represented Topeka well, uh, and very ambitious and hungry for the job. Mm. Uh in a year that was sure to be a democratic year. In fact, it was. There, there was a piece, I think it was the last weekend in September of 74, Lou Cannon, front page of the Post. Gravamen of the story was that not only was it going to be a democratic year in the Senate races, but Bob Dole would be the anchor man of the Republican class, meaning he would be down lower than all the rest. Uh, because the campaign being run against him was either he knew or he should have known about Watergate. He was RNC chairman after all. And he couldn't break out of that for the longest while. And the polls were not going well for him. And he had a famous... In that, that summer, before August, a debate at the Hutchison State Fair. I think it's Hutchison where the State Fair is held. And Roy had insisted, uh, pers well, persistently demanded a debate. Dole was on defense the whole time. I mean, I remember, parenthetically, different from this, an event can't remember what occasion it, but Dole had, Dole's forces had planned some kind of demonstration in some, in a Kansas town. And <clears throat> the Roy forces complained that that was going to disrupt their long planned event. Dole ordered his event canceled. I went in to see him and said, shall we make Pendergrass, the, the manager of your campaign, Paul Pendergrass, had been Roy's chief of staff. I said, if they're going to determine our behavior, how the heck are you going to win? So it didn't look like he thought he could win or even was fighting to win. Back to the debate. Finally, Roy got him in, boxed him in so that it was impossible to say no. Roy said, you're the expert on agriculture. We'll have a debate just about agriculture. We'll do it at the state fair. Uh, and the rules will be classic... Uh, uh, no moderator. We just get into the ring together. I'll ask you questions. You ask me questions. And it's all on your turf agriculture. Dole said, sold. He asked for, I was not involved in that debate preparation, but he asked for and demanded and got an exhaustive encyclopedic briefing book on quotes everything he'd ever done for farmers in Kansas. And he studied it in the run-up to the debate. 
and two minutes before they got into the ring, and it was a statewide radio hookup, Dole turned to this same Bill Wolfer and said, you know, at this moment, even though I studied that book, I can't think of a single thing I've ever done for Kansas farmers. <laughs> He'd overprepared. Not only that, but when they flipped the coin, Dole elected to receive. Excuse me, he elected to kick off. Now, it's irrelevant. The point is, the rules called for each candidate in alternating fashion to ask the other a question, seven questions each. While they'd given him the encyclopedic briefing book, no one had given him seven questions to ask. It was agony to listen in, a fo- in as I did on a phone hookup. So much so that finally Dole said, and he got nationwide news for this, he said to Roy, is it true that as an obstetrician gynecologist you performed abortions? This was less than two years after Roe v. Wade. It was, it looked like it was over at that point. Not because abortion wasn't a winning issue for Dole. I thought it was. I believe it was. I believe I had something to do with it, in fact. But that ham-handed way of dealing with it was an indicator of his desperation and the ill-preparedness of, of, of him for the debate. Now, that would be clear to people like us. What, what was the press coverage of that they debate? They thought he was, was nasty. It was a very nasty question, put from a guy who had earned his reputation as a hatchet man defending Nixon. They were sure he was nasty. But you know, the other thing is fascinating. I've never heard this. When you talk about him being overprepared, it goes a long way toward explaining what some people thought was a cavalier attitude toward later debates, yeah. including, of course, the vice presidential debate. In 76. Yeah. Now, there was a turnaround, and this is all very self-serving, but nope, it's nope. on tape, so I've got to <laughs> do what I can. Uh, the turnaround came later. That was, uh, is, if I recall it correctly, it was July, probably, State Fair. Maybe it was August. But I think it was pre-Nixon uh, resignation. I'm just not sure. That's irrelevant. Around that same time, uh, that same time being the appearance of the Lou Cannon piece. It may have been the Sunday before the Lou Cannon piece appeared in the Post. He had his second joint appearance with Bill Roy, and it was on, I think it was Face the Nation. It was a network Sunday talk show, and I briefed him for that one. I gave him half a page memo. And it was no more than half a page. And almost in its entirety, it said, this show is 30 minutes long. After commercials, it's 26 and a half minutes. There are three people asking questions and two of you answering. That means maybe you get to talk for seven minutes. Maybe you get to talk for seven minutes. That's enough time to make the following three points. You're being smeared over Watergate. 
your opponent is smearing you with Watergate, and you resent, resent being smeared with Watergate. First question, as I recall it, probably came from Bill Plant, I don't remember. It was, Senator Dole, your opponent says you either knew or you should have known, and, and uh, that you are uh, trying to buy the election with big contributions from outside the state of Kansas and from, because of all the connections you made as Republican National Chair. How can you justify accepting so much money from outside the state? And Dole's answer was, it takes a lot of money to fight a smear. And he was off to the races after that. I remember standing outside the studio at M Street after that appearance, and he said what I had not heard him say up till then, which is, I'm going to the airport. I'm going out to Kansas. And I think he left that day and turned the thing around. The Lou Cannon story said the polls showed him 12 points down, and I said, Lou, our internals are worse than that. And that was with a month to go. And the ad, the famous commercial. What was, what, yeah, what was the origin of that? Well, that, that was, Taggart was involved in that and Dave Owen. Uh, I wish I could claim the credit, and maybe I can, but I don't remember it. Uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't eschew the credit if it's given to me. Uh, but I wasn't involved in the production of the thing. Maybe I had something to do with the concept, but I always thought that the fellow who went on to become lieutenant governor, Dave Owen, and uh, Bill Taggart had more to do with it, as, and perhaps also Bill Wolford, but I'm not sure, honestly. It's a great commercial, though. Could you feel? I mean, could you sense a, a, a change in the in the political climate um, as a result? Immediately, I could only sense the change. It was more than sense. I could see the change. I mean, it was like the veil had been lifted from the guy because he had been on defense most of the year. He so, with the help of three reporters on that show, so thoroughly wiped up the floor with his opponent for the first time in months, if not during the whole campaign. Uh, he was energized in a way I hadn't seen him during that whole campaign. And we'll backtrack a little bit. How bad was the pardon in terms bad. of contributing oh. <laughs> to this? It was, it was very bad. I mean, the... <laughs> I don't know, it was very bad. Uh, but the whole thing was very bad. And you talked about his attitude towards Nixon, but you know the famous quote when he was asked, you know, earlier in the year, uh, maybe in the spring, would you like the president to come out to Kansas? He said, well, he could fly over if he'd like. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it was just went from bad to worse. And so... That uh, show, uh, Face the Nation, if that's what it was, and I believe it was, although I used to tell people I thought it was issues and answers, I'm sure it was CBS. Uh, that was his first reminder of how good it feels to win. 
and he, I mean, he won you know, with a first round knockout. Do you think at the end of the campaign he expected to win? No, I mean, I think he was up. He was hopeful. Well, I was there in the uh, and there. <laughs> he was so nervous that there is probably CBS has got this. There, have you heard of this? The election night coverage mm-hmm. is going on, and Dan Rather, Cronkite is still supervising it, as I recall. Dan Rather has the Midwest desk, and just as the camera goes to Rather. And Cronkite is saying whatever he's saying about report to us on the votes. Rather, with the, I guess he has headphones on, I don't know. He said, Walter, can I get back to you? I have Senator Dole on the line, and he wants to know if he won. <laughs> Does that sound like Dole? Yes. He, he was so impatient with how slow the returns were coming in that he called Rather again. He... He did have this view that there were certain magic people. People in the White House fit that bill. Dan Rather on election night, sitting atop all of CBS's resources, fit that bill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I don't think, he wasn't at all sure how it would turn out. And he wasn't at all sure, I can tell you, that he liked the part in the campaign that this issue of abortion had played. He didn't like that at he was, all. He was ambivalent at the time. Uh, Maybe ambivalent's not the word. I mean, yeah, he, he, he wasn't happy. He just didn't like it. With what it took to win. Yeah. And he didn't use it much. Uh, I'm sure, and there, there are a lot of people who thought it was inconsequential. Remember that he won by less than a half a percentage point. I remember checking at the time. I don't know that it would be reconstructable. It's not. It's irrelevant. But there were precincts around Wichita. Belle Plains is the name of a town that sticks out with, in my mind. Where, as an example, the vote, it was heavily Catholic areas, and the vote went as heavily Democrat for governor as it went Republican for Senate. Yeah. And there's only one reason for that. And I uh, probably wasn't the only one who worked that issue some. For me, it was easy. I believed in it. But I also believed, politically, when everybody was unsure what the, what the impact would be, that every vote it would win for Dole would be two votes because it would be denying a Democratic vote to Roy. Huh. And I think that's the way it turned out. And in, a, in a, an election that was that razor thin, which is back to your question, is why he couldn't have been sure he was going to win. It was that close. And he had been, uh, Luke Cannon wasn't wrong. Right. Four weeks before, he was 12 points down or more. What, what, uh, do you, what do you think a near-death experience like that does? I mean, does it make him even more attentive to the home state? Um, because clearly, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Unlikely as it may be, that's really the beginning of Joel's national career. Right. Understand to be personally reminiscent about all that. that it, I don't think the uh, fact that abortion was a factor in his campaign issue and he knew that I was responsible for that is the only reason but it was a reason that post-election I wasn't going to stay very much longer and he didn't really want me to so I don't know that I'm well equipped to answer that question What were your relations with him in the immediate aftermath and over the years? Over the years, it's not been close, but, uh, you know, I had occasion to ask for his help just recently when I needed it, and he freely provided it. When I saw him on, you know, the other day at, uh, at Claude's funeral, it was very cordial, both him and Elizabeth. Um, so it's not like there's an estrangement sure, there, sure. but... For all that I was a lobbyist a lot of the period uh, before I got here, I didn't spend a lot of time with him. Do you think he's mellowed? Or there is this notion, you know, and a lot of people, of course, like to attribute it to Elizabeth. That was the, remember, that was the theory during the 80s. There's this yep. new Bob Dole, right. and it's because, you know, Elizabeth. Yep. And, you know, my own theory, uh, which is that he taught her most of what she knows about politics. Yeah, that's clear. I mean, she has the degrees that he has the street smarts. Yeah. So it's a very good team in a lot of ways. But that her impact, his impact on her was at least as great as oh, her impact on him. I have no doubt. But I also think, having worked for both of them, that it is extraordinary to me the degree to which neither one of them has much of a life besides them, each other and their jobs. It's extraordinary to me the degree to which that's true. I mean, my story about Elizabeth, just briefly, is my office, I had the office of policy, produced more paper in the first four months she was there than I had in the previous four years. That's how long I was in that office because she demanded so much briefing material. And one day someone came into my office and said they just called, they're with the secretary in Seattle. She's getting on the plane in the morning, and she needs some briefing materials for the trip. I said, briefing materials on what? I said, oh, they didn't say. <laughs> they just want some briefing materials. I said, I said well, would you tell them that I, to tell her that I said, when she gets to the airport, she should go into the bookstore, buy a copy of Lonesome Dove, and read that on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> she's, a, she, she's a good lady. Yeah, good but, lady. but it's funny. Unlike him, yeah. for her, there's no such thing as being overprepared. But that's because I mean, there's a very different history there. She was like a lot of accomplished women, particularly Republican women, the first ever to do whatever it was she did. Yeah, and she's always been looking over her shoulder, knowing that. Real good just wasn't good enough, and holding herself to a an impossibly high standard. You know, it's it, so she's 
she's driven in in a way like he is with the same intensity, but I think you know for different reasons. One interesting insight into him that I got, which crystallized a lot of things for me, was I think it was the Kansas City Star. Back when they were still running, a lot of papers were their own Sunday supplement. They did a very long piece on Dole. Did you ever see it? I don't recall it. Would have been, I think, in 74. Okay. But I'm not positive of that. Maybe it was when he was vice president, vice presidential candidate, in any event. Tells a story that as a young boy, you know, before war, he's still at home, and uh, his father tells him before he goes to sleep, when he wakes up in the morning, he needs to go get milk at the store. I don't know what it was exactly. For some reason. Or maybe his father set the alarm. I don't, I don't know exactly why. But for some reason, the alarm went off about 2 o'clock in the morning. He got up, dutifully went to the store, and waited for it to open. Assuming that his father must have known what he was doing and had a reason to do it the way he did it. That was back before life got absurd. Yeah. I've always thought, understand, it's perfectly understandable why people dwell on the war years. Yeah. I've always thought that living in the Dust Bowl in the midst of the, of the Depression had to have been at least as formative yep. and experiences. Yeah. Finally, what were his strengths and, and weaknesses? Well, you know, we don't have enough time to go through them all either yeah. on either side of the ledger. Yeah. The strengths, we touched on some. I mean, the, the, the mind is, is extraordinary. Uh, the, is it a curious mind? Not in, not, it's not what I would call intellectually curious, if that's what you mean. Yeah. No. Yeah. A lot of times, that's the point of the story about getting up at 2 o'clock and, you know, I may not understand it, but he said it. He's authority. I'll, I'll, yeah. He's my dad. Another great strength is the evident is the obvious in the humor. I, I never forgot one time. Uh, you, you know the the Washington Post when I was in his Senate office had on the front page a report of some outrage or another. I don't remember what it was. Dole came in that morning and demanded of us the immediate production of an amendment to fix the outrage. This is the way they legislate up there. He's not alone. It took a little while to craft the amendment. My recollection is John Smith. I don't know if you talked to John. No. He was a legislative assistant back then. Very good fellow. I don't know where he is back in Kansas, I think. Any event. <clears throat> demanded the thing, kept bugging us, where is it, where is it, where is it? It was never soon enough. Finally, 
John Smith, you know, says, "Well, here, here, let me," and he grabs it out of his hand and heads over to the floor. And an hour later, he comes back as crestfallen as Dole ever gets, because somebody had beaten him to the floor with the amendment to fix the outrage on the front page of the Post. But Dole was still Dole. He said, just goes to show you, second demagogue doesn't stand a chance in this town. (laughs) So that's one of his strengths. Uh, uh, It's a great strength. And and humor, a sense of humor, is in fact a sense of perspective. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, Weakness... uh, the way he treated people, the way he, uh, the way he treated people who were working hard to do well by him, uh, the staff, you know, the steamroller over staff, real tough and and hard to defend. Um, Biggest strength, in my view, without getting too sappy about it all, is that he believed in this stuff. You know, he really deeply believes in the country, in the system, in the good he could do as a United States senator for the country, for the party for Kansas and the people therein. That all meant and means, I think, an enormous amount to him. Uh, and it's why, you know, they should name a build him after him, they should do all kinds of things. Uh, my relationship with him was uneven at best. Uh, I went from being, you know, the distant uh, <laughs> potential savior to being a staffer he could stab. Uh, But it never blinded me to that powerful truth about him. I mean, I wish we uh, had more of him, and I wish that the capability he had... I mean, I learned a lot when I realized not McGovern so much as Humphrey how good his relationship with Hubert Humphrey, whom I'd always demonized as a kid. This quotes, ultra-liberal prayer, you know. I learned a lot from the fact that this partisan hatchety guy respected and worked with and learned from Hubert Humphrey. Learned a lot from, from all of that. I'll bore you with one thing that finds its way into some of those things I write from time to time because it's a reminiscence about that time. I I have what I call the rule of disagreement, which is that uh, it can be a sign of respect uh, because I can't know whether I disagree with you or for that matter whether I agree unless I first listen carefully to what you have to say instead of assuming that I know what you think because I think I know where you're coming from. Well, 
the seeds of that rule were born at in an issues and answers green room setting when Bob Dole was the chair of the Republican National Committee and Larry O'Brien was the chair of the Democratic National Committee. And we had, for the previous months, put out, it seemed to me, a weekly press release accusing Larry O'Brien of every sin, mortal, and venial you could think of. And I had convinced myself, having written some of this stuff myself, that it was true and that Larry O'Brien was a really bad guy. Fifteen minutes, fifteen seconds after he got into the green room, I realized that I really liked Larry O'Brien, and he wasn't such a bad guy after all. In fact, he was a very good guy. That's what Dole realized. With, you know, it's not like I learned it directly from him, but I learned it from being with him in a number of different episodes. He understood that in a way that this town doesn't understand it now at all. I was 25 when I learned that lesson. People two and three times that old evidently haven't learned it yet. It's really Can't tell you how many times I've heard him say, uh, referring to the Senate, but obviously more generally this town, this isn't a place to hold grudges. But it is now. It is now. You know, we used to hold these truths. <laughs> now we hold grudges. I mean, it is. Is it as bad as you've ever seen it? Yeah. yeah. And I sometimes will say when I'm going on this way with folks my age, is it just because we're getting on in years and we remember some imagined golden age? Yeah. We're pretty sure it's not just that. It really is different. It's meaner. It's um, it's awful. We have you know, talk radio is a part of an industry that is called political. It's not the politics I think of, but which is dedicated to making the American people mirror their politics when it ought to be just the other way around. Uh, mm. And if there's good news in these days, it's that the American people are only divided, in my view, evenly. Their politics and politicians are divided deeply. And talk radio and certain politicians are dedicated to making sure that, the, that they deepen the divisions among people uh, to match the political divisions. It almost comes down, I mean, the last thing, I remember one of the early conversations, I think it was with George Mitchell, where I was talking about why it's so difficult for successful legislators, and I include him in that, but, but obviously Bob Dole, to become president. And you know, there's a whole lot of, obviously there's a whole lot of reasons. But I remember saying, you know, here in this atmosphere, in this place, you see a difference. You try to narrow it. On the campaign trail, you see a difference. You exploit it, and you get rewarded. You know, yep. 
in each environment mm -hmm. for, quote, succeeding. It's uh, f for Republicans, and it, it's not, I mean, this is a bipartisan problem. Okay. But Republicans, I, I tell them, they've got so fond of wedge issues, they use them on each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an irresistible impulse now to divide. That's the surface appeal of the Obama message. Absolutely. He's, if, if only I could convince myself, one, which, that he understood it, and two, that he meant it. Which, in effect, I mean, he's very shrewd. It's a very shrewd message. Yep. He, is, he is the outsider, in effect, tapping anger, but he's not an angry candidate. Yep. He's a unifying candidate. Yep. It's a remarkable yep. combination of, and, and it maybe only works because Hillary Clinton is because George Bush is in the White House and Hillary Clinton is yep. the un-Obama. Yep, yep. It's, uh, but it's, I don't know, did you see the piece that this woman Susan Dunn wrote Monday in the Post? No, no. Uh, she. Now that's, I think, is that, that name James McGregor Burns? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, and she's written uh, uh, Secrets of the Founder, something. Right. Like, I don't know. yeah. Interesting piece. It's one of the things I indulged myself about, uh, saying that Obama's unity pitch uh, is just flat out wrong, because uh, she says that uh, the essence of democracy is nonviolent political competition. Well, I, 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 I in, in, in my imaginings, I've opposed what she wrote to what Chesterton wrote. Oh, Chesterton, I'm a fan of Chesterton. And he said the, essence, the, the first principle of democracy is that the essential things in people are the things they hold in common, not the things they hold separately. Mm. So, but, and she, she, so it's common or conflict. But isn't but, totally how you wage that conflict that yeah, defines well, that's your the, democracy? That's exactly. That's it's how the, you deal with the differences. The point I'm, uh, I try to make in the point I'm, uh, I've, I've tried to write, which is exactly that. The issue in, in, in the case of Obama, and I'm not really writing about Obama in this, it's not whether he can do what he sets out to do, it's whether he even means it in the first yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but more important than sweetness and light and harmoniousness is do we live by the rule of disagreement? Do Are we serious? I mean, Moynihan said about what passes for debate in this country, he said, you're either serious about something or you're serious about something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but it is interesting. I mean, it is such a remarkable confluence of events yeah, yeah. That, that I 